poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. What? You know, I've I've heard that this passage taught on for many, many times, and I've always found it a little bit uncomfortable. Have you? Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Raise your hand if any of you have done that yet. Yeah, I didn't think so. Me either. (laughs) Um, I've heard it preached several ways. First, um, most frequently I've heard that the rich uh, young ruler had made riches his idol, his wealth his idol. Um, And so therefore, uh, you can't enter the kingdom of God if anything's more important to you than God. That's one way of interpreting it. As a matter of fact, I, I had a friend who believed in that so strongly, that interpretation so strongly, when her son got a little too excited about his skateboard and and having fun learning new tricks and stuff, she and her husband took it away from him because they felt he was making it his idol. And I asked her, what? And she said, well, she said, you know, you can't enter the kingdom of God if anything's more important to you than God. And that was her reasoning. Um, even to modern-day minimalism, which is kind of a big deal right now. If you're ever on Facebook, you know that. <laughs> um, but we've kind of come to the con- we people have come to the conclusion that material possessions are very bad, and we need to pare down as much as possible if Jesus is going to be Lord of our lives. We have to get rid of as many material things as possible. Um, and there's many books written on the subject. Uh, one I read was uh, a book by Jen Hatmaker called Seven. Don't read it if you haven't, because I don't really think it's worth much, but um, not recommending it. Sorry if Jen is listening to this tape online, but um, I just didn't agree with her premise. But, but the whole thing, that modern-day minimalism, you know, making a spiritual thing out of having few material possessions. Because the bottom line is this, is it wrong to be rich? We better answer that question, because we as Americans, <clears throat> most Americans, live in a top one percent of the world in wealth. I checked that on several sources because I could hardly believe it, but it's true. So is it wrong? Should we feel guilty every time we flick a light switch and have electricity or flush a toilet or throw out food that went bad in our fridge because of the bounty we live with? We never got around to eating it. Well, if you've ever struggled with that idea, you've come to the right place this morning. Because the problem of wealth is what today's passage in James is all about. And we're going to be reading from James chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. So let's read it um, here. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries, which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Okay, I found that a little disconcerting. How about you? Let's go on. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which have been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. 
Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Let's pray and ask God for help. I think we need it on this one. Lord, we uh, ask you that we would be able to interpret this passage correctly in light of the kingdom of God that Jesus laid out. And we just ask that you would help us to understand, to not approach this with any agenda or any, uh, anything to prove, but just learn from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so before we get into interpretation of this gnarly passage, we need to go back to the Gospels for a little important background information. Jesus is writing, excuse me, James is writing to people who are citizens of the kingdom of God. They knew the message of the kingdom that Jesus preached. So we need to take a look at the kingdom message that he preached and do our interpretation from those foundational principles. So what did they know that we need to know is basically bottom line. Well, Jesus preached the kingdom. He preached the kingdom. He came to preach the kingdom and lived out its principles um, with his life here on earth. You know, in our Bible study in Luke, we often refer to the kingdom of God as the upside-down kingdom or the topsy-turvy kingdom. Why? Because the world honors certain things uh, about people. If someone is rich or famous, for example, they are worth listening to. Isn't it true? Hollywood celebrities are prime examples for us today. Why do we care about what Kim Kardashian wears? Or what, what some movie star has to say about the environment or politics? Or what the wealthy think? We respect power and we admire money. It's just a thing that the world does. And what the world values today, those things, is not so different than it was in Jesus' day. But their reason for having the rich and the powerful were spiritual reasons. Because if someone was rich, then they believed that you were being rewarded, rewarded for being a righteous person. Material possessions were proof of his appro approval. And uh, the same went for somebody in leadership that had power, people with power like the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, or even the rich young ruler that we saw earlier. Their status was a reward for their righteousness. They were approved by God. But on the other hand, the poor, the lowly, the wretched, they were looked down upon. If you were poor or even sick, you know what you were called? A sinner. Isn't that interesting? They reasoned God's lack of blessing was showing that he was disapproving of them and judging their sinful lives. So that was the prevalent thought in Jesus' day. But then Jesus arrived on the scene, and he ushered in the kingdom. They had looked forward to the kingdom of God on earth, but it would not mean what they thought it would mean. Um, one Sabbath, early in his ministry in his hometown, Jesus read from the book of Isaiah in the synagogue. And this is what he read. <clears throat> the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives 
and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who were oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. In those few short phrases, Isaiah had expressed the heart of the gospel. The poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed were all going to have a place, an unexpected place in God's kingdom. The first, the last would be first, and the first would be last. The exalted would be humbled, and the humbled would be exalted. God's kingdom was going to be like nothing the world had ever seen before. But that principle was foundational because, you know, Jesus had come to, to save, to die for the sins of man. He would take the punishment for us, earn justification we could never earn ourselves, and offer salvation as a free gift. And in order to receive the gift, we have to understand that we have nothing to offer. We bring nothing to the table. Empty hands. God has supplied it all. And it's only when one comes completely humbled to the throne that you can really understand and then accept salvation. It's what that rich young ruler needed to understand. He had to lay aside his wealth, his position, all the things that he might claim to demonstrate God's approval in his life and approach the throne empty-handed. And that was hard. So it's why Jesus told his disciples how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But the things that are impossible with man are possible with God. Paul also talked about setting aside any qualifications that we might cling to in claim of the favor of the qualifications that Christ offers. This is what he wrote to the Philippians. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. All these things qualified him for the kingdom of God. Or so the world thought, but this is what Paul says next. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss, so that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, everyone has to enter the kingdom of God on the same turf. Nothing to offer. Hands empty, open to receive. Rich and poor, marginalized and famous. Everyone enters the same way. Now that's a kingdom principle, and that's what people knew when, in James's time as he wrote this letter. And that kingdom principle is not only about our initial salvation. That kingdom of principle continues to define who we are as citizens. We are all here because of the same reason. We've trusted in Jesus and received his gift. Everyone is on equal footing in the church. We all wear the same clothes, the righteousness of Christ alone. But evidently, the recipients of James' letter had fallen back into the same old, same old. They actually were recognizing some over others as more important and worthy of respect. And you'll probably remember this. I think Bill is the one who preached on this 
in chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. To show greater respect to the rich or the famous, it was an oxymoron when paired with faith in Jesus Christ. James' first readers were given the rich preferential seating, uh, were giving the rich preferential seating, and they were guiding the poor to places in the back of the room, even the floor. He told them, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Stop showing favoritism. You're violating the foundational principle of the kingdom. So with that whole background, now let's look at chapter 5. I think it's going to make more sense. He tells them, come now, you rich, weep and howl. Why? Because everything that has given you status and preferential treatment will be judged and burned away as chaff. Wealth and its worldly status do not impress God. And not only were those practicing favoritism out of line, but the rich were accepting the favoritism as their due. And they were guilty of, prepara- of, of preferential treatment as well. James writes, James writes, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. They had treated the workers as less deserving of money than they were. Rather than giving the laborers their share of profits, they were hoarding the profits for themselves. And uh, where did they think all those material blessings were coming from? Earlier in James, he wrote, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. They were absolutely ignoring the kingdom principle. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. James 1.9 restates Jesus' words this way. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Well, what does that mean? Our God-given salvation levels the playing field. In God's economy, there is no entitlement. We are all citizens for one reason, grace. And don't miss how James refers to God here in that little section, the Lord of the Sabbath, which was an interesting choose of phrase. I believe he meant it was the God of rest. Rest from what? Rest from working to prove your worthiness. Rest in Christ alone. Approach him every day with our lives, with our hands open, acknowledging that anything we are or anything we have is a result of Christ in us. And only when... Everyone has the same sense of humility, knowing that we're all saved by grace and brought nothing to the table, understanding everything that we have, materially or spiritually, comes from him, uh, can a healthy church function. So James goes on to address the rest of the believers now in lighting of these frustrating circumstances, this injustice that's occurring. Therefore, brethren, be patient. Until the coming of the Lord, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early rains. You know, the kingdom of God, it's in process. It's growing. It got started a little bit like D-Day did for the Allied forces. When the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, it was a very fierce fight. Many, many lives were lost. But in the end, they took the beachhead. They took it and they started to move inland. 
And at that victory, it was the beginning of the end for Germany and, and Italy. <laughs> um, so it was just the beginning of the end because they would march systematically, and I think it took about a year, from the beaches in Normandy all the way in to interior Germany, to Berlin. And, uh, and then the, the war in Europe was over. The, but the war had been won, but there were still battles to fight. Things still going on, but victory was inevitable. Jesus talked about the same kind of growing aspect in Mark. He talked about the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed on the soil. He goes to bed at night, gets up at day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. I love that. So, you know, we're, we're casting seeds, kingdom seeds, and God is causing the growth. And something small is becoming bigger. He also compared it to a mustard seed, which sown upon the soil, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. So you get the idea of the kingdom starting small, getting bigger, and growing. The kingdom is growing. And you know what? Someday it's going to be complete. It's going to come full grown. And so James says this, You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain against one another so that you yourself may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. One day, the Lord is going to return, is going to return, and he is going to take his place on that eternal throne of David. He will be the king that we have never experienced on earth before. He will rule selflessly. He will rule with justice. And so James is telling them, stop thinking it's your job to police each other. Change your focus from the horizontal to the vertical. Put your focus on the judge. And know the day of justice is coming. And when, a day when we're finally going to understand truly the full impact of grace and the enormity of what we've been given. So what? How should this passage affect my life in the here and now? Well, there's a lot of justice in this world. People in power manipulate a system. And they promote themselves and their agenda. There's a lot of unfairness, a lot of um, preferential treatment out there. And I am sad to say it's not just in the world. It also happens in the church. Um, I see it all the time as a writer. People take God's word out of context, use it to promote their own agenda, and they get a huge following. And people are following them and buying up all their books, and they're not even writing the truth. That makes me crazy. Um, sometimes it seems like the church is moving really in the exact opposite direction of what we expect it too. Um, but we can personally live out this kingdom principle we've covered this morning. But what do we do about the injustice that we see in others around us? That's the question that I think James is answering with this very last part of the text. He gives us an example, a, a, a scriptural antidote for us to follow. He says, in his example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke the name in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. If you know the story of Job, that is one long story of injustice. Here's a guy who's basically being punished for his faithfulness. God holds him up as an example to Satan and, has, uh, and, and 
tells him, hey, you want somebody faithful who's sticking with me? Look at Job. He was his star student, the one that he wanted Satan to see. And Satan said, well, the reason he's so faithful to you is you give him stuff. If you take away the stuff, he won't be so faithful anymore. You're not worthy of worship. Just what you do for people. So that's what God said. Okay, you can take away the stuff. And so Satan did. And then Job continued to be faithful to God. So Satan went back and said, well, okay, but you wouldn't let me touch him, his body. He's sick. When you're sick, boy, that you really you can't hold on to things then. So I know if you didn't bless him with health, he would stop being faithful to you. So God said, okay, you can take away his health. Can't kill him, but you can take away his health. And so that's what Satan does. And Job is sitting in front of a fire with sores all over his body. Most of his family has perished, all except for his wife, and she was no prize. And you get to the end of this whole section, and here's Job, totally unjust. And he's crying out to God, and God stays silent. Job's 42 chapters long. We don't hear from God till chapter 37. And this is some of the things that Job says. He knew he was, oh, his friends come up. They show up on the scene, and his friends start telling him, Job, the reason you're in trouble, the reason you're sick, the reason you lost your family, the reason all your, your um, wealth is gone, it's because you're in sin, Job. You need to confess your sin. And Job said, I don't think so. I've been faithfully uh, sacrificing. I've been following God as I can. I, it's not my sin. But they persisted. It's your sin. And, of course, that's that whole reasoning that we talked about a little bit earlier. So Job knew he was blameless. And the injustice of everything that was going on was a struggle for him. He said this, I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you're contending with me. Is it right for you to indeed oppress, to reject the labor of your hands and look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty, yet there's no deliverance from your hand. He didn't understand what was happening. But here's the thing. Even though he didn't understand, even though he was discouraged and in pain and all sorts of grief, he did not walk away from God. He kept talking to him, kept reasoning to him, kept him involved in his struggle. And at the end of the story, God reveals himself in beautiful ways to Job, things he'd never thought of. And this is Job's response. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job is our example. We need to do the same thing when just injustice is evident. Keep doing the right thing. Put our heads down and continue moving into the wind. Stay the course. Walk with the Lord. Endure. That's what he says to do. It harkens back to what he wrote earlier in James 1.12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Perseverance. That's what God wants. He just wants us to hang in there. Bar's not real high on that one, I don't think. You know, we're not supposed to be going out and doing great spiritual things. 
we're just supposed to be hanging on for dear life. That's what he's saying. And we'll receive the crown of life when we do that. Well, how do we do that? How do we hang on? Because sometimes things can get so discouraging that we just want to throw it away. I'm, I've had it. I'm done. This isn't working for me. I'm not even sure there really is a God. What if we're doing all this stuff and being so faithful and in the end he doesn't even exist? Have you ever thought that? I have. And so, what, so how do we endure when we're that kind of discouraged? Well, I think that the key to endurance is the very last sentence in our passage today. It says this, remember, you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings and that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. You've seen him act. You've seen how he delivers. You know he's merciful. You know he has compassion. So hang on knowing that thing. So we continue moving forward. But here's the thing. Where we're looking as we're moving makes all the difference. In Hebrews, the writer said, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, I was just reading the other day how that the... the the punishment that the Romans inflicted on Jesus were not meant to kill him. The crucifixion was going to kill him. But the mocking, the putting on the robe, the beating, the, the, the uh, whipping that he received, his back was torn to shreds, all of those things were not meant to kill. They were meant to shame. Jesus endured those things because he was going to be shamed. Why? Because he had to suffer humiliation to be able to put a set of footprints in those sand for us to follow. We're going to suffer. We're going to struggle with these things. If Jesus did it and we're following a suffering Savior, then we'll have to do the same. He's gone before us. He suffered the effects of injustice. He was accused of insurrection. That's why he was crucified. Not true. It was a big lie. Um, And he... uh, Kept going. Why? For the joy set before him. And now he's resting at his father's side and his work is complete. The whole idea of sitting down. The high priest is standing up, offering sacrifices all day long. Jesus offered his sacrifice and sat down. He was done. It's over. Once and for all was that sacrifice. And Ephesians tells us that we are seated already in the heavenly places as well. The work that needed to be done on our behalf, it's finished. So we can rest in the grace of the Lord of the Sabbath. We keep our eyes on the Lord, who's full of compassion and merciful, and resting in him gives us the endurance to persevere. Let's pray. God, this was a a lot to take in this morning, but I pray that we would just come away with one thing, And that's that we need to rest in you. And that your work on our behalf has done it all. And we are are, uh, already in glory, uh, as according to Ephesians. We pray, God, that we can rest in you when we see injustice, see things, unfairness, which just makes us crazy because we're made in your image and you are just. And so, of course, unfairness, injustice is just something that's just intolerable to us. 
but that we can look past the circumstance, look on the circumstance maker, that we can learn from his example as he walked in humility and in suffering and in justice and know that if we just hang on, that you will bring us through and we will receive the crown of life. We thank you so much, God, for all these things and for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.